Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just finished talking with Matthew Stanley about his really interesting and important new book, Huxley's Church and Maxwell's Demon, From Theistic Science to Naturalistic Science. And this came out in 2014 with the University of Chicago Press. Now, this is a really fascinating and interesting and I think important book if you are interested in the history of science, the history of Victorian science in Britain, um, the history of the relationships between science and religion, along with um, much else. But it's also important and useful and very much worth reading for anyone who wants to inform, contextualize, and deepen their understandings of contemporary debates. And by contemporary, I mean right now, debates over intelligent design, arguments over creationism and creation science, over the place of religious education or religious concepts in the class, in the science classroom specifically, um, along with many other related issues. This is really an example of a book that is very much grounded in uh, a context and a set of cases that directly informs contemporary debates in a really, really useful way. So what Matt does is he takes us into Victorian Britain and he introduces us to two figures, Maxwell and Huxley, who kind of epitomize and represent what we might think of as two opposing ways of negotiating science and religion in the history of science. Um, This is respectively theistic and then naturalistic sciences, as he puts it. But what becomes really clear over the course of the book is that these two figures and these two approaches were actually not that different at all. Um, And diverged at a very particular point in a very specific way, and not in a lot of other ways, importantly, um, in a history that really challenges flat-footed conventional attempts to position science and religion as deeply and fundamentally opposing forces and opposing realms of thought and inquiry. really, really interesting. Um, It's really, really fun to read as well. And it's written in such a way that is so clear, so easy to read. Um, And by easy, I also mean very sophisticated, right? But in a way that's very approachable and also is so enjoyable that I would say that this is a book that's very, very assignable for um, teachers out there who are looking for readings for classroom studies of histories of science and religion. Um, And it's assignable not just in graduate classrooms, but also in, I'd say, mid to upper level undergraduate classrooms as well. So it was really a pleasure to talk with Matt about it. And I hope you have a chance um, to get your hands on the book and to give it a read, because like I said, it's, it's a really amazing contribution. And I think it's really important to contemporary debates as well. Thanks very much for listening and enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Matthew Stanley about his really awesome new book, Huxley's Church and Maxwell's Demon. Welcome to New Books in Science, Tech, and Society, Matt. Thanks so much for being with me today and for giving us the opportunity and the excuse to talk about a book I really, really enjoyed. So welcome. Thank thank you. you. Thanks for having me. So Matt, could you start us off by just kind of bringing us into your professional trajectory a little bit? How did you come to work on the history of science professionally, and what brought you to the history of science and religion as they are kind of intersecting and mutually um, constituting as a topic of research? Sure. So what's one of these funny situations where, in retrospect, my CV makes 
perfect sense, right? Of course, Matt ended up working on these sorts of things, but as the trajectory actually unfolded, it was all completely random and circumstantial. So I started off um, in physics and engineering physics. I used to like to build lasers. So I went to college for that. And then through a strange series of events, I ended up double majoring in religious studies. But the religion was just something I was doing for fun on the side. I was still planning on being a physicist or an engineer. But I discovered after a couple of years that the humanities had corrupted my way of thinking. And in my science classes, I kept asking these questions like, but why would anyone ever put this equation in this form? Or you have to make this assumption in order for this derivation to work. Where did that assumption come from? And my science professors didn't even register these as questions. They were, they were sort of non-questions. So it became clear to me, um, both after I graduated and a couple of years of working in, the, in physics, that the sort of questions I was interested in in science weren't ones I could answer in the lab. So I started looking more broadly, and I discovered history and philosophy of science. Um, and then I discovered quite by accident that my thinking about religion um, had given me all sorts of interesting uh, historical problems I could chew on. And one of the, uh, the first ones that grabbed me and eventually um, gave rise to my dissertation was the question of uh, what happens when a scientist themselves is religious? Because I had been strongly conditioned with this very common idea that science and religion were opposites and they were always fighting. Uh, but then I discovered that Newton was very religious. I wonder what, what could that mean? Right? How, how did that affect his day-to-day -day work? So I, my initial area in the history of science was this particular question of how is it that religious scientists can continue to function um, as scientists and religious believers at the same time. Uh, so that became my dissertation and my first book, um, Practical Mystic, was, which was on uh, Arthur Eddington, a Quaker astrophysicist of uh, the early 20th century. Um, and one of the things I, so sort of one of the arguments I made in that book was about how it was that a scientist maintained a religious identity in a time and place of modern Britain when that was considered to be very strange. That is, no one expected a scientist to be religious. And as I finished up that project, I started wondering about how it was that that expectation came to be, because I realized that, um, you know, well through the 19th century, the default assumption was that a scientist was also a religious person. But then 100 years later, the default was completely the opposite. So I, I, I started wondering about how that process could have happened. Um, and that was part of the, um, the, the foundation of what eventually became Huxley's Church and Maxwell's Demon, was the, uh, the story of how it came to be that we were surprised by religious scientists. Um, but the actual proximate <laughs> event was something quite different, was I was um, teaching a university uh, at the time, and um, this must have been 2005 when I started on this, and there was a professor there who, uh, in the physics department who wrote a book on intelligent design. And he was, uh, it was very, a very popular book on intelligent design, and his colleagues were not very happy about this. And it so happened that he was up for tenure at this time. And he was turned down for tenure. Uh, and the department had, you know, very straightforward bureaucratic reasons for turning him down. But the sense of the university was that he was turned down because of his religious beliefs. So this question of the relationship between religion and science really blew up right on my professional doorstep. Um, and this was also when the last round of intelligent design courses were coming through the United States courts, um, specifically um, Dover v. Pennsylvania. And I noticed in, the, in these decisions, people kept justifying this particular wall they wanted to draw between religion and science in terms of naturalism, uh, which was uh, supposed to be this defining characteristic of science, which was that uh, scientists made no recourse to religious thinking or religious ideas. And that struck me as such a strange way to define science, because until 
the 20th century, so few scientists would have agreed with that definition. So Huxley's Church and Maxwell's Demon became or came out of this particular conceptual problem. For me, I want to figure out where this notion came from, how we came to think of science as being necessarily naturalistic when once upon a time it was really very different. Perfect. Thank you so much, Matt. And the mm-hmm. introduction of the book actually really nicely takes us into this kind of deeper context and deeper justifications for why, not just why the story that you're going to tell us is going to be intrinsically interesting and important on its own terms, but also why this story is actually really important and interesting and useful for speaking back to and for informing how we think about some really important um, co- concepts and conceptual debates and political and practical and you know educational debates mm-hmm. right now. So right. that's one of the really, um, one of many, I think, really interesting and important things about the book. So the book, um, in order to do this, right, in order to kind of situate naturalism historically and give us a way into thinking, and in in I think a more kind of historically grounded and open-minded way about these issues, it focuses on two figures. Each of these figures is going to represent a particular point of view in Victorian Britain. So we have, on one hand, T.H. Huxley, um, who's going to um, represent for us kind of naturalistic science. And then we have James Clerk Maxwell, who's going to represent a theistic science. But really interestingly, these are very intertwined. Like These aren't set up at the beginning of the book, or really even for most of the book, as two opposing camps. And one of the really beautiful things about the book, right, is it's showing really the commonality um, between these two points of view that we might assume in, you know, retrospect must be very different. Um, Mm -hmm. So, okay. So, and so this is one of the really great things about the book. So the first chapter really introduces these uh, main figures of the story for us. So I'm going to kind of throw the ball back to you and ask sure. us to, or ask you to briefly introduce um, these guys. So James Clerk Maxwell, what do we need to know about him in terms of his biography? Um, what's sort of most important, you think, for us to understand in order to understand the work that you're going to be doing with him later on? So Maxwell, I should say, is still a very well-known name. So if you mention Maxwell to a physics undergraduate, they'll know exactly who you're talking about because his work in electromagnetism and statistical mechanics, color vision, all sorts of different things, um, in some sets sets the stage for almost all of modern physics. It's really a remarkable achievement. Um, But what I find interesting is that Maxwell himself is almost completely deleted from this modern remembering of him because if you had asked his colleagues in the Victorian period about Maxwell, they would have said, he's a deeply religious man with a terrible sense of humor. (laughs) And these were the things that would have impressed anyone upon meeting him for the very first time. Um, He was a Scottish aristocrat, uh, impenetrable accent, uh, a terrible writer who nonetheless loved to write and try to convey his ideas, wrote comic poetry, uh, and was um, had this very unusual religious background, purely relevant here. Um, he was raised in both the uh, Anglican and the Presbyterian traditions, so he sort of had a foot both in the Church of England and the Church of Scotland, which was very unusual. But then even more, uh, as a young man, he has an evangelical conversion experience uh, in exactly the way you think today of evangelicals being born again. Um, he's studying for his college exams and he collapses. He has a fever and he emerges from this, say, a reborn man, uh, convinced of his own sinfulness and his need of reliance on divine grace. And that evangelical perspective really sits with Maxwell for the whole rest of his life. And I think in an important sense dominates uh, both his sense of self and his familial relationships, but also um, his sense of what it means to be a scientist and how he's supposed to behave in the world, relate to other people. Um, So a lot of what uh, we see in Maxwell in this book is this evangelical scientist. And one of the things I'll just say as um, one idiosyncratic reader that I really loved um, about the book as a whole, and it's really encapsulated in your description and introduction of Maxwell in the book here, is it's really written with a very light hand and a very humorous hand. So you take us into, as a kid, Maxwell saying, you know, asking, show me how it does. Like you take us into his nicknames, he's nicknamed Daffy. Mm -hmm. 
Um, give us you give us examples of some of these really really bad comic <laughs> poems. He's experimenting on falling cats. He's like juggling. Mm-hmm. So he's doing a whole bunch of kind of really awesome things. It really is. He's an amazingly rich character. Um, And uh, several biographies have been written of him, but they tend to be this very dry scientific stuff. Um, But he's really just uh, an incredibly entertaining person to spend some time with. Like if he had a Twitter account, you can imagine that he would be tweeting really bad puns like all the time. Exactly. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So then we also have Huxley, right? Um, Huxley... Mm -hmm. Who, again, I'm going to throw the ball um, back to you, but I'll just mention, like, again, for in, in the case of Huxley, we have not just lots of things that s- would seem obviously, like, relevant to the argument, but you take us into his work on jellyfish and all kinds of cool stuff. So, Huxley, um, same yeah. question. What about him do we need to, under- to, to know to understand his role in the story? So one of the things I like about pairing Maxwell and Huxley is we get, in some sense, Maxwell is um, what we think of as the stereotypical Victorian. He's deeply religious. He's uptight. He's politically conservative. um, uh, He's very well read and so on. Um, Whereas uh, Huxley is this very different but hugely important element of the Victorian experience, too, is he's the improving underclass. Right. So he's... um, He's born into a relatively poor family. He has very little formal education, but he's desperate to live a life of the mind. And he doesn't see how he can do that within the existing structure of Victorian Britain uh, because he refuses to swear the 39 articles, which means he can't go to college. He can't go to Cambridge or Oxford. It's this very straightforward thing that he simply cannot do. And then even beyond that, he doesn't have the money he would need to even pay for, say, a private education or go to the University of London or something like this. So he has to um, scrape together an education just from what he can find on his own. Uh, And he ends up having to be an assistant surgeon on uh, the HMS Rattlesnake. um, And he travels around the world and he tries to do his science as he's trying to um, figure out how to keep himself alive while thinking about these things. He literally cannot, there is no job for a professional scientist at this time. So his journey kind of mirrors Darwin's in an interesting way, right? So Darwin is a young man, gets in the Beagle, travels the world, learns these marvelous things, comes home and, you know, uh, uh, becomes a sage of science. And Huxley tries to do the same except he comes home to be massively in debt. He has no uh, formal college degree. He's a doctor, but he's not licensed to practice. So he, um, he gets his money together by uh, like translating book reviews from German into English. Uh, he has to stay up all night to do enough work to keep himself alive. Uh, and he's profoundly frustrated by what he sees as the Church of England's stranglehold on intellectual and professional life. That he, if he has, to, he, he's very clear about this. He says, the reason I can't be um, a man of science is because the Church of England has made it impossible for me to do so. Now, importantly, um, I think a, a point at least that emerged for me as being really important here, that is, I think, a, a, a important in, insofar as it's a corrective against how some people might think of the importance of this. Huxley is not against religion, right? right. He's against theology. Um, and you yeah. take us into this notion of Huxley's church mm-hmm. part of the book. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because that seems really, really crucial. Yeah, I think you're right. It is crucial, but it is um, it can be quite tricky to track down as well. So Huxley is one of the great controversialists of the second half of the 19th century. And he's particularly famous for dueling articles with priests and bishops and theologians of various sorts. And he, and he had so much fun trouncing men of the cloth whenever he could. It was far and away his favorite hobby. So he would pick fights with, these are verbal and literary fights, um, with anyone he could on matters of religion. So he gets this reputation very quickly as this iconoclast who hates religion. But whenever he had the chance, he would always say, no, no, it's, I really, I actually love religion. And he would even say, I love what Jesus taught, but what he said he hated 
was theology, by which he meant a set of religious doctrines which one would be forced to believe. And this notion of forced belief was really critical uh, for Huxley. Uh, He wanted to make sure that everybody can believe whatever they wanted about anything they wanted. Uh, And some ideas, of course, were valuable and some ideas were less valuable. But the one thing you could not do was enforce someone's belief about anything. And he said that was the great problem of established religion, is the sole purpose of the Church of England was to force people to believe certain things. And then he would like to point out, you know, he'd like, then he'd twist the knife and say, and in fact, what the church is forcing you to believe is not even what Jesus taught. And then he would go back to the Bible um, because Huxley was extremely well read in the Bible. He describes his own evangelical upbringing, actually. Um, And he thought the Bible was a wonderful book, and he was more than happy to turn his knowledge of it against his theological opponents. Great. Now, at this point in the story, Maxwell's theistic science was the standard, and Huxley was the challenger, right? So you make that clear at the end, and that's, I think, important to keep in mind, again, as a kind of um, corrective, I think, um, to some assumptions that some readers might bring to this. Now, as we move from this into, into Chapter 2, Chapter 2, we move into a really important part of the argument. Chapter 2 looks very carefully at a notion that's going to become crucial for the later arguments of the book, and this is the notion of the uniformity of nature. So can you, uh, again, I'm just going to throw this back to you, can you talk a little bit about this for listeners who may not be familiar with this idea? What is this idea of the uniformity of nature, um, and why is it so important here for both, actually, the naturalists and the theists? Yeah. So I should say the uniformity of nature goes by a number of different uh, labels. Um, So uh, I just picked this particular one because I found it kind of conceptually clear. The idea of the uniformity of nature is the following claim. It's the idea that nature runs on laws, and these laws never break. They never vary. They don't change uh, depending on where you are or when you are. It's, in some sense, a basic statement of faith in the ability to explain anything that happens in nature in terms of laws. And the uniformity descriptor there is supposed to emphasize this notion that they don't break. Okay, they change. They they never change. They're the same any time you want to, to think about these things. And this is, uh, in in an important sense, I think, a a sine qua non of modern science. Right? You can't do science in the modern sense if you don't accept that there are these laws of nature and that they will be the same no matter what you do. And it's so obvious, it's, it's such an essential element of modern science that you, it's sort of hard to imagine what science would be like without this idea. So what I found interesting in terms of Maxwell and Huxley and the theists and the naturalists is that these two groups both agreed completely that uniformity was necessary to do science. Everybody agrees on this. What they disagreed about was why you should think this was true about the universe. So it's it's not hard to imagine a universe that isn't uniform, right? where gravity is different today and yesterday, where gravity is different in Africa and America. Right? You can imagine such a, a situation without any difficulty. And it turns out to be very difficult to prove that the universe is uniform. It's something you can assume. It's an idea you can use, but you can never really demonstrate it. So the problem becomes, if you are a scientist and you think nature is uniform, What reasons do you have for thinking that is true? And the standard answer to that question since Newton had been that God is a lawgiver. God created the universe in a lawful way. And because he made really good decisions when he made the universe, uh, those laws never change because he picked the right laws. Right? Uh, and this is uh, far and away the most common answer, and everyone is very happy with this answer for a long time. The problem becomes with Huxley and the scientific naturalists uh, in the middle of the 19th century, and of course there are earlier roots of this too, um, Need to, if they want to make the case that science should be done without any reference to God, then they can no longer rely on that argument for the uniformity of nature. But they can't get rid of the uniformity of nature. Again, how could you do it? You know, Darwin's theory wouldn't make any sense if the laws of nature weren't uniform. So they had to figure out a way to talk about uniformity in a way that made sense in their worldview 
uh, without this kind of theistic presupposition that people like Maxwell had. So at stake, well, so um, you take us into, I think, um, in, a, in a way that's really, really interesting, some details of that explain kind of what, um, in more detail, what Maxwell's position was, right? So mm-hmm. how did he actually um, work out and work through his ideas about the laws of nature and uniformity? And one of the things, um, before we kind of kick it back to Huxley, one of mm-hmm. the things that's really interesting about Maxwell's use of um, kind of argument in this context is his recourse to analogy. Analogy Mm -hmm. becomes really, really important to him. Because analogy and models and things become actually, um, I think, increasingly important as we move through the book, can you talk just a little bit about that, the importance of analogy to Maxwell? Why is that such a big deal here? So one of the peculiar things that happens in the physics of the 19th century is that people like Maxwell increasingly have to work with entities that cannot be seen or touched. So uh, if you want to make a kinetic theory of gases, you have to make certain assumptions about the existence of molecules. And you can't see a molecule, you can't touch it, you can't do a direct experiment on it. So um, a, a, uh, a reluctant epistemologist might say, no, you can't use those tools at all. And in electromagnetism, it's even worse in that uh, all of your entities that you're dealing with are all invisible. Right? You can't see magnetism. Um, force appears to act at a distance. But at the same time, you can, you can get some conceptual traction on what these things are. You can run experiments on it, even if you can't see it. But then the question becomes, can you say there is an electrical ether? So uh, there's a lot of ink spilled on this problem in the middle of the 19th century of, of how can we um, uh, bring up these, or how can we talk about these questions without becoming Descartes and making up the idea of vortices or having, uh, you know, Ptolemy's spheres, something like that. There's, there's this deep concern that physicists will start talking about things that are invisible, that, that are um, imaginary. So Maxwell's solution to this is um, this tool that he calls sticking with um, analogies, in which he says, uh, if you want to talk about something that's invisible and impenetrable and kind of bizarre and otherworldly, you need to figure out how to link it to something that you can understand already. So he says, we can't really understand how magnetic field lines work, but it seems that they follow the same pattern as um, hydrodynamic flow, which we can observe. So let's figure out if we can make an analogy between um, magnetic fields and hydrostatic flow. And then the question becomes, how do you do the analogy correctly? Because there's, of course, lots of bad analogies you might do. And this is what mathematics ends up doing for Maxwell, is it's a way to construct these analogies between things you already understand and things you don't understand and maybe can't understand. Thank you so much. Now, one of the really interesting things happening here is that you're showing us the ways that... Um, Miracles and arguments over miracles become this kind of microcosm in which we can see this uh, set or this difference in approaches between Huxley and Maxwell and their camps um, or their you know the, the people they're working um, with and speaking with. And so, can you talk a little bit about that? What's the big deal with miracles and and, and what's going on there? Yeah, it's a good question. And to a certain degree, it's a deliberate choice on the part of Huxley to focus on these questions of miracles, because he thinks it's a place where he can really show that naturalistic science does better than uniform, uh, than theistic science. So the problem here is that there are stories of miracles in the, the Christian tradition that seem to defy the laws of nature. Right? Dead things don't usually come back to life. So a strict interpretation of the uniformity of nature would say that um, uh, the resurrection of Jesus could not have happened. So Huxley says, because um, this is the case, that miracles pose this particular problem, if you think, if you believe in, in miracles, then, he says, you can't do science, because the belief in miracles means you believe the laws of nature are violated, and if the laws of nature are violated, then you're no longer believing in uniformity. And if you don't think the laws of nature are uniform, then you simply cannot do science in any meaningful way. Uh, So Huxley wants to use this as kind of a thin end of the wedge. And interestingly, he doesn't want to say the miracles are false. 
so much. He wants to say that if you believe in them, then you can't do science. All right, so it's a kind of a way of redefining the scientific identity. But the theistic scientists, people like Maxwell, uh, of course, aren't going to give up the idea that, that these miracles can be thought about. So this very interesting cottage industry uh, grows up among theologians in which you try to explain how it is that miracles could have been done through natural laws. Um, that, and then there's this very particular idea that there are laws of nature that uh, that are real and uniform, but they're hidden from us. Uh, so things that look like miracles to us are actually perfectly explicable within the uniformity of nature if you knew a little more science. Right? So if I saw somebody floating through the air in a basket, I might say, that's a miracle, because that's a violation of the law of gravity. But my friend who knows more um, about uh, Boyle's law and gas pressure says, oh no, that's a hot air balloon that even though it looks like gravity is being violated, it's actually just this combination of other laws that you didn't know about and that God does apparent miracles through that. <laughs> so that way nature gets to stay uniform, but God can still intervene. Excellent. It's sort of like it's actually nothing like this, but it makes me think of Battlestar Galactica and the Cylons, like hearing the music. Like it's all, you know, there's uh, an yes, explanation, it. man. It's, it's like, that's right. They have a plan. <laughs> there's a plan. Okay. So as we move um, away from Battlestar Galactica momentarily, right? And we move from chapter two to chapter three, we also move from miracles to the origin of the universe. Yeah. So, you know, small stuff, like not, not to get right. questions yes. at all. So this chapter um, takes us further into this um, landscape of naturalistic and theistic sciences by looking at Victorian debates over the nature and the limits of science. So mm -hmm. this chapter takes us into efforts to attend to and answer questions like, you know, what can science meaningfully investigate? What mm -hmm. tools can be used to do that? And how do we know that we're not just fooling ourselves as you kind of lay out in this chapter. So this becomes a way to understand not just Huxley's and Maxwell's positions as they epitomize um, naturalistic and theistic approaches um, to these questions, but also to understand some really important elements of Huxley's and Maxwell's thought. So you understand here Huxley's agnosticism right, as a way of understanding his position on the limits of science. So can you talk a little bit about that, Huxley's agnosticism here and um, what that has to do with um, his position on this issue? Sure. So uh, one of the ways that people often remember Huxley these days is as the, the coiner of this term agnosticism, uh, which Huxley invented, as, as he describes it, as a term that uh, during debates of the metaphysical society, he got very frustrated about people always accusing him of being an atheist because he would say, I'm not a theist. And they'd say, therefore, you're an atheist. And he'd say, no, it's something else. So he coins this term eventually agnostic to mean that uh, there are things that he simply thinks human beings will never know the answer to. And one of those questions would be the, the existence of God. Um, and then agnosticism, the term and the idea has a very strange trajectory after that. But what I want to to do in, in this particular chapter is, is show that Huxley's ideas about agnosticism aren't these purely theological abstract questions, but they're actually quite closely tied to really important matters of scientific practice, which is, you know, in, in the most simple way of what kind of statements are acceptable for a scientist to make, right? How can, what can scientists say and still be scientific. Um, and Huxley, of course, has to spend a lot of his career defending, for instance, um, you know, the, the reliability of the geological record and the ability of scientists to talk about things that happened deep in the past before human beings ever existed. Uh, and those are questions that are um, dangerously on the border of scientific knowledge in the 19th century. 
So part of what happens with agnosticism is Huxley is trying to formalize what counts as acceptable scientific knowledge and what counts as not scientific knowledge. So something, for example, like the um, ideas about the origins of the universe would fall mm-hmm. into this category that you just mentioned of things that happened before humans existed, right? That's right. right. Yeah. So some strange things uh, happen in terms of conversation about uh, the early universe in this period. Um, one of the implications of the second law of thermodynamics is that there must have been some point in the finite past in which the current order of nature, that is natural laws as we understand them, must have been different. And we don't need to get into the, the, the technical such here. But people like Maxwell looked at this and saw this as an immediate recognition of the biblical story of creation. And it's important to note that this is not a literalist story. So even though Maxwell is a conservative evangelical, he's well aware that the beginning of the universe um, is, is many millions or tens of millions of years in the past. And all of the virtually all of the theistic scientists agree on this particular point. So then say, Huxley comes along and accuses the theistic scientists of talking non-scientifically by pointing to this idea of biblical creation via thermodynamics, because he says, uh, there are some things we can know about the past, and those are things that have to do with natural laws. So we watch the laws of geology here on the surface of the earth today, and then we extrapolate back in time, assuming that those laws don't change, and then we can figure out what the earth looked like in the past. And he says, that's great, as long as laws of nature are continuous and uniform. But as soon as you get to that moment of creation, the laws of nature are no longer uniform. And therefore, Huxley accuses the theists, um, you're no longer doing science. Uh, and this is, of course, a, a powerful rhetorical move, but it's also closely, relinked to, closely linked to Huxley's um, idea of what counts as scientific practice. But what I find interesting is that the theists actually agree with Huxley on precisely this criterion, which they say, that's right. We can't scientifically know what's going on at the moment of creation. And in fact, they even agree on the reason for it. They say, yes, because the uniformity of nature is disrupted, we can't talk about that in, a, in scientific terms. But then they are perfectly comfortable saying beyond that limit to scientific knowledge is God's action. And they say, that's it. And that's when we need things like scripture and, and divine insight and so on. Um, Whereas Huxley wants to say, if you want to be a scientist, you can't talk about anything past that boundary. And Maxwell wants to say, of course I can. I just, I'm just not speaking as a scientist at this point anymore. Great. Thank you so much. And in this um, discussion of Maxwell's position, um, I won't ask you to talk too much about it so we can get mm-hmm. to uh, Christian so- socialist organizations and stuff. But I'll right. just mention for listeners who are particularly interested in the history of um, analogies and models um, in the history of science, there's a really interesting discussion here following on our previous um, conversation just a few minutes ago about analogy and the importance of analogy to Maxwell. There's um, a case here in which models and modeling and analogical reasoning also continues to be really important to how Maxwell is dealing with um, these issues that we've been talking about. So, but let's move to the Working Men's College. So after um, this discussion, we move to a chapter that explores the involvement of theists and naturalists in science education. Now, this is really important in part um, because this now, the importance of education is going to continue to be there um, for the rest of the book from here on in. And so this really gets us into a place where we can focus on an issue that's going to continue to be and even um, uh, kind of increase in importance over the course of the argument. So Mm -hmm. this chapter... um, really kind of shows us, among other things, as a way of, again, speaking to larger um, modern contemporary 21st century issues, that what's become a kind of truism for a lot of people today, that science teaching and religion um, should not be happening right in the same room, that science teaching should have no religious content. This was simply not the case um, in the context we're looking at in the book. And in fact, there's a history here that we have to understand in order to understand how we got to where we are today. 
right. So that history takes us into this really fascinating um, organization location called the Working Men's College. This was a Christian socialist organization. Can you introduce this briefly for us? What do we need to understand about the nature of this college to understand how to place Huxley and Maxwell within it? Sure. So there's this, the, the history of Victorian education is bizarre and fascinating and Byzantine, but the particular observation that in some sense motivates Huxley through this whole, whole story, that is that uh, poor working class people can't get a proper education. So Huxley's solution to this, we'll talk about in a moment, um, but this problem is observed by, um, by upper class aristocratic people as well and seen to be a problem. So there's um, a movement in the early Victorian period to create places where working class folks can learn all sorts of different things. And there's a lot of dispute about exactly what kind of education they should get. Because one of the concerns is that the uh, many of these early groups, sometimes called the mechanics institutes, were often politically radical. That is, it was a place where uh, it, the, the concern was that these were places where the lower classes would get together and read, you know, French uh, revolutionary tracts. So the Working Men's College was an attempt by uh, this particular group of people called the Christian Socialists to create a kind of working class education that would teach the working classes anything they wanted to know, but in the particular context of what they saw as proper religious belief and social structure. So to a place where the wheelwrights could come and read Homer without being contaminated by radical French thought. Awesome. Now, in, um, in the context of this organization, you take us into the, both um, the experience of Maxwell and of Huxley as teachers here. So right. Ma- Maxwell's teaching science in a fundamentally theistic way and Huxley's teaching science in a naturalistic way. So how do... What, how do we understand that? That's right. So this is, um, I think, such a, an interestingly peculiar situation. So Maxwell decides he wants to be a teacher as part of his evangelical conversion experience. So he's, remember, he's an aristocrat. He's independently wealthy. He doesn't need a job at any time in his life. But he decides that it's God's mission for him to teach science. That that is how he's going to fulfill God's um, mission for him in the world. So Maxwell decides that it's his duty to teach the working classes the right way to think about science, and that's particularly in this in this theistic mode. So that's he's exactly the kind of person that the Working Men's College expects to get. He's well-educated, he's respectable, um, he's uh, a reliable person to be passing on knowledge to the working classes. However, um, Huxley also sees himself as a champion of the working classes, and I should say justifiably so. The working classes absolutely love Huxley. They see him as one of their own, uh, and he plays to that a great deal. So Huxley sees his mission as teaching science to the working classes as a tool that they can then use to liberate themselves from the oppression of the Church of England, for the most part. Uh, So both Maxwell and Huxley want to do the same thing, teach science, to the same group of people, uh, the working classes, in some sense for the same purpose, that is to teach the working classes how to better themselves, but their agendas are completely opposite. Maxwell wants to enrich and stabilize Christian Britain. Uh, Huxley wants to throw it all out, pull it up from the root and start again. Uh, And yet it so happens that literally the same institution is the perfect place for both of them to do this project. So they're teaching the same classes to the same people and the same sorts of places, but for completely opposite reasons. Wonderful. Thanks, Matt. Um, and I won't, again, I won't ask you to talk too much about this so that we can move okay. on, um, but I'll, I'll um, just signal for listeners who are particularly interested in this notion, you introduce the idea um, here of valence values, right, which is I think yeah. something that you've talked about elsewhere as a way to understand how this college functioned, um, or the, the kind of elements of this 
college that functioned as valence values between these mm-hmm. two men. Um, do you want to maybe briefly introduce the idea of valence values? Sure. Possible? Yeah, uh, of course. Kind of so it's an idea that came out of my first book, um, Practical Mystic, in which I was trying to figure out how to talk about these two parts of one person's life. Uh, that is, I remember the, the book was about um, a religious scientist, and I really wanted to avoid this problem of trying to say his religion was just his scientific ideas or his scientific work was just his religious ideas, but to make the case that they were bonded together even though they were still distinct practices. Um, So the analogy I was going for is this valence electrons in chemistry, in which two atoms can be bound together by sharing an electron. Uh, And it's the same. So the idea behind valence values is that two different groups or kinds of practices can share one idea or one value and therefore find themselves linked together Uh, in otherwise surprising ways. So in this particular case, uh, Maxwell and Huxley both think that education for working men is important, uh, and then they end up pulled together in this particular college, um, bonded together, as it were. So still in Chapter 5, as we move from here, we have, a, we have other cases that we're actually not going to talk too much about, but that I just mm-hmm. want to mark for listeners. We have another case or other cases here in which we still see um, the sharing of perspectives among the theists and the naturalists, right? And here you're looking um, specifically at the question of intellectual freedom. So mm-hmm. in this chapter, both groups are suspicious of dogma, both groups are suspicious of kind of sectarianism, and and you take us into um, sort of Huxley's position and Maxwell's position, again, as epitomes of these two different, um, but in, in some ways, you know, still kind of similar um, mm-hmm. perspectives on the issue of intellectual freedom, on sort of um, what uh, true scientific inquiry looks like, the conditions that make it possible, etc. Now, by chapter six, though, this is where we see really strong divisions start emerging among theistic um, and naturalistic sciences. The fault line emerges here over a really, really interesting problem and a problem that's still very much a hot topic among, you know, sort of ontologists and epistemologists today, and that is the problem of the mind. How ought we understand the mind as a scientific object, and how ought we understand consciousness within the larger context of natural laws? We have frog souls here. We've got... (laughs) You know, trains, we got triggers, we got free will, there's all kinds of stuff happening here. So um, let's kind of just start broadly. Can you, or I'll start broadly in um, just asking you to talk a little bit about this. What is um, Huxley's position here? And can you take us into his idea of automatism as a way of understanding the mind? Sure. So the the issue as Huxley sees it is actually pretty straightforward. So Huxley says... Look, we all accept that the physical world runs on natural laws. Uh, That's what it means to think about the uniformity of nature. But then the question is what happens when we get to these weird corner cases of things that aren't quite like the physical world. And the primary example there is the mind. You can't, again, you can't see the mind. You can't poke it with a stick. You can't put it in a box. So should it obey the same rules as everything else? And Huxley says, of course, this is the very nature of science, that you have to try and explain everything in terms of natural laws. And then he points to Victorian physiology as examples of success for this. So he says, look, um, your body runs on reflexes. You don't, you're not actually controlling all the muscles in your body right now. And if you had to control every muscle that you use to walk, it would never happen. So that shows you, he says, that your mind is actually not really in charge of your body. And he has a whole series of arguments he makes um, about this that leads to what he ends up calling his theory of conscious automata. And he makes the case, again, starting with frogs. He has this famous essay called Has, has a Frog a Soul, uh, in which he um, vivisects a frog and notes that it can keep um, it can keep uh, working and functioning even as you remove big chunks of its nervous system. So it's, it's clearly just running like a self-acting machine that is as an automaton. And then he gradually convinces you that you're not so different than the frog. So 
He says, in the same way, this frog keeps functioning even as you cut out bits of its spine. He, he takes this sergeant from the Franco-Prussian War uh, who, was, who had this terrible brain injury, who apparently would, could do things that appeared to be conscious action. So this guy would write letters, for instance, but he didn't care whether there was ink in his pen. So Huxley would say, aha, you see humans are really just like the frog. These, this Sergeant F was the name of this particular uh, war victim, um, can act as though a conscious person. He's doing things that everyone would recognize as conscious activity, even though we know it's not really conscious, right? We can see the damage to his body and to his brain that tells us. And then he says, if that's true, and it must be, then that means everything that you think of as your conscious control of your body is similarly wrong. And in the end, he, he has this very powerful metaphor. It says your consciousness is like the whistle on a steam engine, the whistle on a train. It's a sign that the train is functioning and it's real, right? It's not that the, the whistle is an illusion, but you would be completely wrong to say that the whistle was in control of the engine. And he says, your consciousness is the same way. Your consciousness is just this byproduct of the physical functioning of your brain. And we erroneously think that that consciousness has some control over the body. But in fact, that's not it at all. You're, you are an automaton. You're just conscious of the fact that you're an automaton. So the consequences of this for notions of free will. Yeah. So, again, this is a longstanding problem in human thought. <laughs> it is the problem of determinism, which is that if you think uh, every effect is produced by a cause, then you can track that uh, um, chain of cause and effect both backwards and forwards in time. And if that's true, then me talking right now, and of course me talking right now is the effect of certain muscles moving within my body. And those muscles are, uh, are the motion of those muscles are the effect of certain causes, say electrical transmission in my nerves. And we can sort of trace back all of those physical causes way back before I even existed. So in principle, then, someone 200 years ago with a perfect knowledge of uh, physiology could have predicted just sitting at their desk exactly what I'm going to be saying now. So if that's correct, and that seems to be a logical inference from applying the uniformity of nature to the mind, if that's correct, then our sense that we are in control of ourselves has to be wrong, right? I think I am controlling what I'm saying, but in fact, a smart enough person could have predicted what I said even before I existed. Mm -hmm. now, <clears throat> Maxwell's approach toward understanding free will is actually quite different here. He's also um, got some ways of using metaphors um, to argue mm -hmm. for the possibilities of free will. And he's also one of those metaphors... Um, uh, including a man pulling a trigger, a pointsman shunting a train. This is also where Maxwell's demon comes in. So um, can you maybe talk very briefly about um, where Maxwell falls on this free will um, divide? Sort of how is he understanding sure. this and where do we get the demon? Yeah. So Maxwell has a very different set of commitments from Huxley in that Maxwell also agrees that nature has to be uniform. But he's also deeply committed to the idea of the Christian soul, and particularly the idea that human beings have souls that can make real decisions. Because if you can't make real decisions, then the whole Christian narrative of salvation is pointless. That's it's, it's a false story, and Maxwell can't accept that. So he, but at the same time, he acknowledges all of Huxley's evidence. He says, yeah, our bodies do look a lot like machines, right? There's a lot of things that are similar between us and frogs. So Maxwell has to try to figure out some way that we can get um, something like efficacious free will while still maintaining that the laws of nature are real and not violated regularly. So uh, and again, it's, it's, it's so interesting that both people go to the same general area for their metaphors here. So Huxley says consciousness is like a train whistle. And Maxwell says, no, it's not a train whistle. And it's not a train. He says it can't be that the soul 
is the is the engine of the train because we can look at the body and we know that the, the muscles of the body are the engine, right? And the soul can't be the fuel of the train because then it would get burned up. So he says, well, it must be the person who determines where the train goes. So not even so much the conductor, but the person who controls the rails on the train. So at the time it was called a pointsman or a signalman. And Maxwell said, you know, think about how gigantic a train is, right? It's enormous and has all this momentum and force. But one person who pulls a tiny little lever can make that train go to a different place. So Maxwell says, this must be the metaphor for how the will works. Um, it's not that the will can overpower the physical realities of the body in the same way that the pointsman doesn't push the train himself, but rather there must be some, some way in which a tiny motion can, have, can affect a very large motion down the line. Um, so he wants to use this railway metaphor. And there are various developments in mechanical physics at the time that he thinks helps him out, this, this development of called singular states and instability. But really, it's this, it's this metaphorical notion that an intelligent actor paying attention to what's happening can affect physical events on a large scale. So he says the soul must be like that. And this is largely in um, correspondence with friends where this image appears. And then at the same time, Maxwell is working on statistical mechanics, the kinetic theory of gases, and the second law of thermodynamics. And he's writing to his friend Peter Guthrie Tate. And Tate says, what do you think about the second law? And Maxwell says, well, I'm not so sure if the second law is as important as everybody thinks. And here's why. And he says, imagine a pointsman on a railway track. And then he takes exactly the same metaphor that he uses to try and defend free will and explains how a pointsman working on a microscopic scale could actually undo the processes of the second law. So the argument is actually the same that Maxwell says a, an intelligent observer who's just looking at what's happening can cause physical changes in the world around him. And I really find it fascinating how this, uh, this metaphor is sort of co-produced in religious and scientific contexts at the same time. But Maxwell is totally reasonable to deploy it in both these theological and purely technical arguments. Right, and that's a really important take-home, like among the other things happening in this chapter from this chapter, right? His understanding of free will, this idea of um, the demon, um, this sort of use of metaphors, and etc., and and where he falls ultimately um, on this, was importantly not simply an importation of religious dogma, as you put it, I think, here, into mm -hmm. his philosophy. This was something that, as you just mentioned, was co-produced through um, you know different ways of thinking it. This is not just like, look, he's slapping his religion down and mm -hmm. having that influence what's happening. That is not what's happening here. And I think that's really, really important as a corrective to how we might um, typically understand the interplay between science and religion as sort of these separate entities um, in a case like this. Yeah. And one of the things I really like about that is we get to watch Maxwell wrestle with this problem, right? He never really solves it. He's sure that that metaphor of the pointsman is correct, but he never figures out exactly how the brain would work. But then for that matter, neither does Huxley, right? Huxley is also arguing from his own metaphors. It's just they have competing metaphors of what they think is the right way to think about this. And these are programmatic arguments they're having. They're both trying to make the case that the mind should be investigated in a particular way, that is, with a particular kind of value system and framework in mind. Um, so it's not something that can be resolved by an experiment or an equation. It's a question of how you think about the role of the mind in the scientific investigation. Great. Thank you so much, Matt. Now, mm -hmm. there's, um, there's another really interesting chapter that I'm not going to ask you too much about, <laughs> purely um, in the interest of not keeping you, you know, for another two hours, to be mm -hmm. honest. Um, but this is a chapter that looks closely, this is chapter seven, at mm -hmm. how Huxley and the naturalists won. In fact, that's the first sentence of the chapter. Huxley won, right? Um, and you t take us into the history by which, at the end of this story, or toward the end of the story, we don't get to the end until the end, right? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> how, how practitioners of science 
came to, as you put it here, embrace naturalism as essential to their work. And Mm -hmm. you show us um, the ways in which there are two kind of major aspects of Huxley's strategy that make him so successful and make him and the naturalist so successful um, in making naturalistic science seem obvious and unique, as you put it here. One was by gaining control of science education through a focus on elementary education, a focus on exams, um, by influencing textbook creation. And another was reframing concepts like uniformity. We talked about uniformity um, of natural laws a little bit earlier as only naturalistic despite their theistic roots. So so rehistoricizing and reinterpreting the narrative of the history of science. And you also take us here um, into the context in which Huxley's work um, and the work of the other naturalistic um, scientists moved really quickly from Britain to a context of um, the, to America, basically, mm-hmm. in part thanks to the work of John Dewey. So, so this is really important, and I'm not going to ask you to talk about it. I'm just going to mark that um, for listeners. Um, there's uh, who, listeners who want to know what happens um, toward the end of this story, at least insofar as Huxley is successful in propagating his ideas. Um, look to chapter seven, but that's not the end of the story, and that's why um, I'm, I'm not asking you to talk too much about that. In the conclusion, you talk about some of the ramifications of this story for how we understand contribute to and shape um, and conduct debates over intelligent design today. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that for you? How does this inform how we might, how we ought to, how we could conduct those debates now? Yeah. So I think one of the, the peculiar things that happens is that Huxley's victory is so complete in terms of reframing science as obviously naturalistic, that we still use his categories today, categories like naturalism, um, without thinking about them as constructed categories at all. So when we nowadays in the 21st century use terms like naturalistic science, we forget that the divisions between science and religion and theology that are embedded in the idea of naturalism were created by Huxley and his cohort to solve very particular problems in a very particular social and cultural context, right? This is Victorian Britain, and he's trying to solve the problem of the established church. But now it's 21st century America, which is uh, pluralistic in a way the Victorians could never have conceived of. We do not have an established church Huxley was also talking at a time before there was standardized science education, and in some sense he helps invent the very category of standardized science education. But we're still using these categories to have conversations about a very different educational system uh, and a very different kind of religious culture here. So what Huxley would have pointed out, when Huxley says, I don't mean religion, I just mean theology, by which he really means the established church. But now, in the 21st century, when scientists talk like Huxley, that distinction is lost, because we don't have an established church, right? In America, the United States is a profoundly religious society, but we don't have anything like the Church of England. So, When people talk like Huxley now, that distinction between religion and the established church is lost. So the verbiage just comes across as purely anti-religious. And instead of being aimed at bishops in charge of restricting education, they come across as being attacks on anyone who has religious belief of any sort. So... The, the quite nuanced case for naturalistic science that Huxley made in the 19th century uh, in 21st century America comes across as extremely um, uh, polemical and uh, restrictive and dogmatic in a way that it was never really intended to. Now you talk in this um, conclusion about the importance specifically of critics of intelligent design being more precise in their objections. That's right. So can you just talk very briefly about that? Mm -hmm. Sure. So what we saw, what we see very often in arguments over intelligent design 
is it'll be very straightforward. A scientist will go on CNN and say science is naturalistic and therefore intelligent design can't be part of science. And the way that is heard is science has to be irrestricably removed from all considerations of God and the divine. And even so strong as if you're a religious person, you can't think scientifically. But what uh, what that scientist means, sort of via Huxley's term, is really a, a more subtle and I, I would say much more persuasive claim, which is that science assumes laws are uniform in nature. Intelligent design does not assume laws are uniform in nature and therefore doesn't fit well with scientific practice. And that that precise claim strikes me as inarguable, right? It is, it is put forward by intelligent design proponents that they do not think natural laws um, can be fu- fully explaining of everything around us. Um, and is also much clearer to the point. It actually explains the philosophical and epistemological split between modern science and intelligent design. Whereas if you say simply that it's not naturalistic, then you're actually pointing to the wrong barrier. Naturalism uh, is saying intelligent design is bad because people are thinking about God while they're doing it, which is simply not true, right? Maxwell was thinking about God when he was writing his electromagnetic theory, but nobody would say we should take it out of the textbooks for that reason. So, Matt, thank you so much um, for taking the time to talk with me today. It's a fascinating book. It's also, um, I'll just say straight up, one of the most clearly written history of science books I've ever read, and it's also a lot of fun read. Um, so thank you. Now, there's a ton of stuff we didn't have a chance to talk about. Two entire sure. chapters, right? Mm-hmm. Among other yep. things. Is there anything in particular um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Uh, let's see. I don't think so. I think your your gloss of the, um, the how the naturalists one chapter is just fine by my standards. <laughs> that would be really the part we didn't get into. Um, and it's it's a tricky argument in that um, it spans a long period of time and national context. So, so no, I don't think I want to get into that. <laughs> but listeners should definitely uh, read the book, right? Because we really just scratched yes. the surface here, so hopefully sure. they'll have time to do that. Mm-hmm. So, Matt, now that this is out, and congratulations on another great book, what's next Thank you. for you? What's um, currently inspiring you? Well, I'm actually coming back up uh, much closer to the present now. So one of the things that uh, I came across with Huxley is this notion of that, that scientists were replacing religious thinkers or that science as a body of knowledge would replace religion. And this is a very common trope that you hear a lot, that scientists are modern priests or modern prophets. So I want to try and get some uh, intellectual traction on that idea. So um, I've picked one area in which I think you could make the case that scientists have sort of replaced a traditional religious dialogue, and that is predicting the end of the world. So this is something that scientists have always done kind of on and off uh, over the history of modern science. But post-World War II becomes a standard mode for scientists talking to the public is these sort of apocalyptic predictions. So I'm looking at how it is that um, scientists have taken over this particular kind of talk which has traditionally been religious, and seeing if I can make some sense of what it means to say that scientists are modern prophets. Well, and that's a a beautifully symmetrical Mm -hmm. also move from Mm -hmm. the origins of the universe to the end of the world. That's right. (laughs) So best of luck with that, Matt. And again, um, congratulations on a great book, and thanks so much for making time to talk today. Thank you so much, Sarah. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. 